Today is February 13, 2013. This is Amy Begley interviewing Sarah May Berman for the RRCA Women Pioneers of Running Oral History Project. Sarah May is best known for being a three-time Boston Marathon winner, 1969-1971, before they officially allowed women to race. In 1970, she ran the course record of three hours. By no, no, it was 71. Oh, course oh, record, yes. In 19, yep, 1970, she ran the course record of 305.07 at the time. And, then and it, wasn't, it wasn't bettered until uh, 1974 when Mickey Gorman ran a 247.11. Oh, nice. So that was, a, that was quite a, a feat to run that time. And then you went and, tried, you went and ran the Potter's Marathon. That was in 71. World, in 1971, you had the world record for about six weeks at Three hours and 35 seconds. So close. Yep. So, Sarah May, how did you get into running, or who got you into running? My husband. He thought that uh, I would benefit from getting some physical exercise. So he And he enjoyed running. So uh, he got me into running. And he had to teach me not only how to run at a, a distance, but how to compete because I was brought up in an age when uh, competing was really not very feminine. So, did, you participate in, and did you participate in any sports before then that was competition, or was running your Well, if you count high school uh, girls' basketball, which was half-court basketball, and occasionally uh, a softball game, which wasn't very hot competition. I mean, there really wasn't very much. Uh, remember, I was in high school from 50 to 54. I was in college from 54 to 58. And there wasn't very much. Uh, I went to Rhode Island School of Design, which really didn't have a physical education program. So uh, I really didn't get any physical activity. Except uh, one winter, I think of 57, there was a... Um, uh, a, a dance review, um, a, a show that the, that's the, the people in the school put on, and I got to be in the chorus, and we had to practice for six weeks. That was my whole, that was my whole, um, you know, physical education. But in the summer of '57, um, we took a room in Brookline with some friends because Larry was working at MIT. Um, and uh, we wanted to go to see the Boston Arts Festival. And so instead of going back and forth many times a week to Providence, where my, school, my college was located, we took the room in uh, Brookline, and um, we could go see the Boston Arts Festival and the plays and so on. And uh, near where we were staying is Jamaica Pond, which has a walkway all the way around it. And it was 1.4 miles? Yeah. And I would sit by the side, and Larry would run around. You know, I was the dutiful little wife. And so one day he said to me, why don't you come run with me? So and I said, you know, the kind of fitness level, the kind of shape you're in by the time you're 30 will probably set the pattern for the rest of your life. Well, that sounded ominous, and I wasn't in, any very, I wasn't in very great shape. So I got up. And I ran beside him, and I ran as fast as I could. And after about 100 yards or so... She left me behind in the dust. <laughs> my ears were ringing, my temples were pounding, 
and I was way out of breath, and I said, oh, I can't run any anymore, and he, I can't run this fast. And he said, who told you you had to run fast? Uh, that was a, that was an important lesson because I had only seen sprinters running, not longer distance running for women. So uh, I thought you had to run fast in order to be considered a runner. So he taught me that you didn't run fast. You just ran at a steady pace that you could maintain and breathe and occasionally talk. And uh, after a while, I was able to run around the whole pond. And I don't know if I ever did it twice around. But uh, uh, later, uh, when we were living in Cambridge, and he would go training at the MIT track, uh, I would come down with him, and we'd set the kids on one side of the track. Uh, the track was a cinder track, and they had piles of dirt and cinders beside the track. So I'd sit the kids by the dirt piles, and they would play, and Larry and I would run around the track. Eventually, I was able to do a whole two miles in one piece, and I said, aha, now I've done it. And he said, yeah, and now you have to learn to run faster. That concept was totally uh, foreign to me, the idea that you, that you would want to run fast. I got the idea that you had to run you know, distance in, in, in one piece, but the idea that you wanted to run it faster, that was strange. So eventually I got to run it faster. And um, then in 64, we were trying to get me to run five miles on a, you know, in training, uh, under eight minutes a mile, and I could never do it. I tried very hard, but I could never do it. So Larry's idea was we would uh, go to a five-mile road race, and I could, uh, I could run in that, and just having all the guys around would help me uh, maintain a faster pace and uh, get, your, get my adrenaline going what, and so what on. What I said was... <clears throat> The racing environment is worth 40 seconds a mile for the same level of effort, or what feels like the same level of effort. Well, it turned out it was a handicap race, so the slower people start first. And when we arrived at the uh, YMCA in Marlborough, Mass., uh, I was wearing shorts and a singlet. I'd cut the sleeves off a uh, T-shirt, and I had a babysitter for the three kids. And Larry took me in when he went in to register. And the guys saw me, obviously, looking like I was going to run. And they were wonderful. They were just wonderful. Oh, you're going to run with us. That's great. I wish my wife would do it. I wish my girlfriend would do it. So when I got on the starting line, me and two old men and two little boys, uh, I was being cheered on. And all through the race, as the faster guys passed, they were encouraging, you know, looking good, looking good, keep it up. It was terrific. And I ran a 38-37. So well under my eight-minute pace that I, that I was shooting for, I was pleased. And throughout the, the rest of the year, I think I, Larry went to several other uh, races um, where I would just step in and run, you know, with the people in the race, the guys. And um, eventually, over the next few years, I wasn't the last one in. I worked my way into the middle of the race. It felt very good. And the guys were wonderful. They were just wonderful. The camaraderie was terrific. 
because and and the long distance runners were the best friends of the women who wanted to do long distance running because you can't cover the distance if you haven't put in the training and they respected the training that each of them did you can't suddenly have a wonderful 10 mile race if you haven't trained you know it doesn't come out of the sky you have to train so if somebody was covering the distance in a respectable time that was to be respected and uh it was just it was just terrific that's amazing that your first experience all the men were really accommodating and respectful I and mean, that's that's different than some encouraging of the not merely respectful but encouraging and uh, this was my experience through all the race all the men's races that I was in I never tried to enter officially because I knew it wasn't allowed. And uh, but just the the um joy of running in a group of guys who and eventually you know you find where your speed level is uh, was just terrific. It was just wonderful. And uh, the uh, the first time and only time I can think of when somebody was uh, slightly annoyed uh, annoyed was um it was in a half marathon uh on the cape larry New born born oh born okay yeah and um i passed a teenage boy in the race oh he said i'm not going to let a woman pass well, me well he didn't say it to you oh he did oh he did he did <laughs> and uh so he dashed ahead well i just kept up the pace i was doing larry and i had rehearsed uh what pace I would do by the kind of interval work he had me do. And uh eventually I caught up to him again. And he was equally as angry and he dashed ahead again. And eventually he came back. And uh the third time I passed him I never saw him again. So either he quit or he just decided he couldn't maintain the kind of pace I was doing. About four years or so later I was in a very short race in New Hampshire. I think it was a 3-miler. And uh he caught up to me and I said he said, "You know, I was the, the guy in New Bedford." Oh, I said, "Hi." And he said, "I'm much better trained now." <laughs> and of course he passed me and I was, you know, not a 3 miles is not really a, a long race for me. Uh that's great. You encouraged him definitely by by your <laughs> No, but the guys were wonderful. And all of the, I'm sure that all of the early women, women uh, who were running long distance in the 60s and 70s will tell you the same thing, that the guys were wonderful. And they were the ones who helped us fight for official recognition of women's long distance because the AAU was not eager. You know that in 1958, the longest sanctioned distance for women was 200 meters. Did you know that? Oh yes. It took a very long time before they ever uh, put the 800 and the 400 and well, it in no no, uh, in 1960 the Olympics in Rome were going to have a woman's uh 800. 800. So our AAU had to get religion. They had to add both the 800 and the 400. And then in 62 at the convention, they added a one-and-a-quarter-mile over-distance cross-country for the fall season so that women would be prepared for indoor track. 
except the rule book got printed wrong. The rule book got printed as a mile and a half. And those people that went to the convention ran their girls a mile and a quarter. And those people who were just looking in the rule book ran their girls a mile and a half. And when none of the girls um, dropped, dropped their ovaries uh, for the additional quarter of a mile, they then a- added that officially so that it was a mile and a half into the, into the 60s. And toward the end of the 60s, they made it two miles and eventually two and a half miles. But, of course, by the middle 60s, women were running marathons. Bobby Gidd uh, was the first one to run in Boston in 66. And... Uh, Lynn Carmen and her husband and Donna Gookin and her husband were running in California. A lot of people ran in the Culver City. There's a lot of results uh, from early on. Yeah, we didn't have internet in those days, so we didn't know, um, you know, in a timely fashion what was going on. We only sort of heard by uh, by uh, Roadrunners News. What was that called, Larry? Runner's Log? Long Distance Log. Long Distance Log. Oh. And I saw I saw a few results from you running cross country. How many years did you run cross country? Oh, um, probably in the later six part of the sixties. I don't know, three or four years. There isn't there wasn't that much girls cross country. There isn't that much guys cross country either. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. And so you, in 1965, you'd worked up to racing five miles. Were you racing anything longer than that by that point? Well, I was training slightly longer. Now, remember, my training didn't come out of the sky. My husband, who had been a runner in high school and college, um, studied all the latest uh, and and best-known coaches. He studied Van Aken. He studied Lydiard. He studied Costel. And because he was coaching uh, the guys in our club, we had started a sports club in 62. At first it was called the Metropolitan AC, and then uh, at the end of the 60s when people weren't sure which metropolitan area we were from, we called it the Cambridge Sports Union because uh, we were from Cambridge and we wanted to give a place to the name. And last June our club celebrated 50 years, and we have four sports in it, running, cross-country skiing, orienteering, and even some race walking. Okay. But Larry coached uh, me, and he coached uh, the younger runners in our club uh, through the 60s and into the 70s, wasn't it, Larry? Yeah. And he did it on the basis of the best scientific information that he could find. In fact, in 71, I think it was, we had, no, it was 70, um, Arthur Lydiard was visiting the Boston area, and one of our other club coaches knew somebody who knew somebody and got him to come talk to some of the members of our club in our backyard. We have a picture. That is, that is great. And, in fact, we uh, gave a copy of that picture to um, uh, New England Running. What's that magazine called? New England Runner? Yeah, New England Runner. Uh, at the time that Lydia died, and we gave a picture of him in our backyard with with some of our runners in it. Oh, that's a great that's a great experience to have. I bet you guys asked him a lot of questions at the time. Oh, the kids were excited because most of our, our early runners were high school kids because the adults were all part of some other club 
or already established club. But our club was the first co-ed running club. Wow. That's, that was probably interesting for especially the younger boys to be with the girls for the first time. I was well, they, they weren't because girls weren't allowed to run such long distances in the 60s. Uh, that's true. So I was the only girl in the club for a well, long, long first, time. Yeah, for a long, long time. Then we picked up a few here and there. Yeah. Toward the end of the 60s, we picked up a few here and there. You know who ran with us one year? Julia Chase. Oh. She uh, was in, I think she was in the Boston area for a year, 64 or 65. And we had we had uh, developed an interest. We held the first season, the first um, accredited season of uh, legal legal season of girls cross-country running in the fall of 63. And there was a local girls' track club of teenage girls, and we persuaded them to run this long mile-and-a-quarter distance by making it a handicap. Larry handicapped it so I wouldn't finish first. And it promised trophies to everybody. I never got better than a third-place trophy. And uh, we, we attracted, um, uh, through, through the middle 60s, we attracted some high school girls who ran cross-country in, in the fall with us. Okay. And not only that, but you, in, the, in 1964, were the first U.S. woman to make the national Nordic team. And so you weren't, you weren't. No, it was 60, it was 68, 69. I, I was made a member of the first Nor- U.S. women's Nordic team, that's cross-country skiing. Okay. I was named in 68 after the Olympics were over, Okay. and it was for the year 68, 69. Ah, the article I read is, is wrong. It is. <laughs> and that's so you and by, by, the, by 69, some of the younger girls uh, who learned how to train properly uh, passed me because in 68 I was 32 and these girls were all 16 and 17 and I hadn't learned I hadn't learned to cross-country ski till I was in my late 20s and in fact I probably have a better technique now than I did then because I had no idea what to do and there was no place you could learn unless you went to a private school up north okay so starting at Nordic skiing later in life, it probably set you up really well then to go into the Boston Marathon the next Well, it was uh, complimentary. I would, uh, rate, I would train at running in the spring, summer, and fall, and I would train, at, I would train and race at cross-country skiing in the winter. And I started cross-country skiing in the winter of 64. Larry and I had seen the Winter Olympics. And as the Russian woman who had won everything uh, crossed the finish line in the relay, uh, the announcer said, and there were no American women in this event. And Larry looked at me and he said, American women are softies. They're afraid. But you're not. So we... uh, had to order cross-country skis. You just couldn't buy them. And he got a John Caldwell's book. John Caldwell is known as the father of cross-country skiing. He was in the Olympics, and his sons and, and daughter were in the Olympics. And um, we entered a race. That is, he entered us in a race. And our skis didn't come, so we skied in, in downhill skis, which in those days were a lot lighter 
and had cable bindings so your heel could lift up. And our boots were leather boots, which gave a little bit. But um, we had no idea what we were doing. And uh, I was the only one that showed up for the women's 5K. So when the organizers wanted to take a picture of the winners, um, they they had to stand our skis up for the picture. And when they saw my downhill skis, uh, they quickly replaced him with somebody's cross-country skis. <laughs> oh, goodness. <laughs> they didn't want to show what you could do without the proper equipment. Right. Oh, that's amazing. Um, so be- when you started getting in the marathons, when was your first marathon that you ran? It was 69. Was it Boston? Was that your yeah. first one? Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Wow. I... I Almost ran in 68, but um, I had uh, uh, strained uh, my big, one of my big toes in a ski race um, in the winter, and so I wasn't in shape to train. You see, what would happen was I would be racing and training at cross-country skiing until the ski season was over, usually the middle to the end of February. And, yeah, and then I would have um, barely six weeks to train at running for the marathon. And um, in 70, when I had my best Boston, um, the final r- big race for me was the end of January because it was uh, a team trial for a team to be picked to uh, travel to Europe for races. And they were going to take three or four. And um, in... Um, uh, let me see, that was uh, 70. Um, I was uh, not quite 34, and the other girls on the team were um, 17 and 18, and there were two uh, 24-year-olds. Or 20, one was 24, one was 25. And um, I knew that if uh, I wasn't third, they wouldn't take me, and I was fifth. So... Uh, that was the end of the season for me, and then I had a lot more time to train for Boston. Uh, intervals and um, long distance and um, long intervals and short intervals. And re- Larry would have me run in a road race once a week and then do a long workout, you know, two and a half, three hours or so on the weekend. And um, I had two weeks, like a month before the marathon, I had two weeks of over 80 miles a week. And that was probably better training than most of the other women were doing. I don't know what Nina Cusick was doing at the time because she'd had good results at Yonkers, I think, and they thought that she was going to do very well at Boston. But um, uh, I had I had a better background at that point. I've asked some women how many miles per week they were running, and a lot of them said they really didn't keep track at that point. Oh, I I had a coach that demanded I keep track, (laughs) and if I didn't, he would. (laughs) You know, I I really like Larry. I like his, the way he encouraged you and got you to do things and believed that you could do it. That's amazing. He's he's definitely the most encouraging uh, husband I've heard about. And one of the things that that I think helped was uh, being married to her. I saw her all the time, so that when she was in pretty intense training, uh, if we went for a workout and, let's say, on a day she was supposed to do repeat 800 meters, 
she would do the first one, and I would say, no, 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 you know, she, it just wasn't there that day. You're tired. Let's just go take uh, an easy run around the river. You know, whereas a, a coach who sees you once a week may not know that. Very true. Yeah, so that was... What did, uh, what did you see in Sarah May that, that thought, you thought, you know, she can do this, she can be a marathoner, she can do all of this training? What did you... When did you see that, and what did you see in her that... Well, um, it took a while to get her uh, to think about being competitive. You have to realize, I was born in 1936. In the 60s, I was in my 30s. In in in, in um, uh, 66, I was 30. So... Um, I was brought up at a time when women girls, didn't do that. G- girls didn't put themselves forward in that way. Competing was sort of unfeminine. <laughs> and so you Except that Larry was an was an MI, was an MIT graduate, and my parents decided that he walked on water, and that if he <laughs> said it was okay, then it was probably okay. No, my attitude was, well, gee, men can run all this stuff. Why can't women? And in fact, at that time, uh, women on cross-country skis were doing as much as 10 kilometers, which is every bit as strenuous as running 10 kilometers. Uh, Women in uh, England and Ireland were running cross-country at three and four miles. So, you know, there was no reason why women couldn't do it. And I thought it was good for her. Like and that. if he I thought like it was good for me, then I decided it must be good for me. <laughs> <laughs> he's very persuasive. I like this. Oh, he's a sweetheart. Oh, that's amazing. And so you really, the thought of... But you have to remember, we married when in, 19, in December of 55, when I was 19 and a half, and he was 21. And we'd known each other for three and a half years at that point. <laughs> I didn't really start running until the the late 57. 57. In 58, I was pregnant. In 59, I was pregnant. Then there were two years when I wasn't pregnant, and then Jonathan came in, in February 63. So I was only running a little bit during that period. And then after Jonathan was born, then I began to run again some more. Okay. And did the concerns of of the health, issues for women running did that ever cross your mind or did you just forget about oh, you mean with pregnancy no well, yeah we're just you know making women unfeminine or giving them muscles or all those rumors that we're trying to keep women from running did you ever give it a thought or you thought that's just nothing i trusted my husband <laughs> he loved me and if i would run he would love me also and he was the run directing my running so therefore Oh, she was my great. abject slave. Yeah. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> Don't print that. <laughs> we'll have them edit that one out. <laughs> um, so how did you juggle the three kids and, and running and training that hard and both of you running and, and Larry well, training you? from time to time we had um, – what we would now call an au pair at the house, not all the time, but sometimes during that time. Um, 
and so that if we had to go away and we couldn't take the kids, we'd have somebody with the kids. Um, my mother was still raising uh, her own children, um, and my dad died in 64, so she was running the business. And um, so uh, I, it's not like I had family support, uh, but I did have um, uh, helpers periodically who would watch the kids. Although uh, in their early years, I would take the kids down to the MIT track, and they would play in the dirt, and uh, we would run around the track, and we could see them the whole time. So, and they could see us. Oh, that works. And sometimes uh, we would run in the morning from our house, and uh, we would take a route that's a mile and a half. It's a loop, and uh, we would tell our oldest girl. Uh, that um, our oldest was a girl, that uh, we would be back in 12 minutes. So if anything was the problem, she was to come out the front door and, and you know, signal Flag us. us down. Yeah. Now, today, we'd probably, uh, that would probably get us into trouble. But uh, in those days, it was perfectly all right. <laughs> yeah, that's what I probably would have done as well, um, for sure. And so you... You were raising three kids, and both of you were training and, and the best of support team for each other. Tell me and, about... And our club is new, and we're, we're, we're recruiting people, and we're holding events. In fact, in 68, we began holding a series of summer races uh, on Thursday nights at Fresh Pond in Cambridge, which is the local reservoir that has a, uh, a, a road around it. Um, it's not really a car road. It's a it's a well. Road. The the water department trucks use it. Yeah. But it's not open to the public. And uh, this proved so popular that we began to get fields of 200 people. That was before any other communities had these weekly summer races. And I remember one week we had to hold three waves. Mm -hmm. The first people who came got to run. First hundred went off. And then ten minutes later, the next hundred went off. And it was, it's two and a half miles. And this, uh, ten minutes after that, and the, 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 the last bunch went off. That was wild. Wow. You and they still continue to this day, these races. Our club uh, still holds summer races. And the Men's Long Distance Committee began to hold Saturday morning races to uh, follow on our Thursday evening summer races. And they hold their, their Saturday morning races all year round, I I as long as the, the, the uh, road is plowed. You guys have definitely been in running and started many things before a lot of people did. You had the first co-ed club, you started races, you started cross-country races. I love your your vision and your passion for the sport, it, it's definitely um, Well, I can't amazing. take credit for it alone because I hadn't come up through any high school or college program. Larry had. He had seen what a good high school program is. He went to Phillips Exeter. He had seen what a good college program is. He went to MIT where they have sports for everybody from uh, interfraternity uh, or club sports to uh, top-level um, varsity sports, and I had none of that experience um, going to high school or college. So uh, he had the experience in this business of sports for all and how good it makes you feel, and I, um, I accepted his experience. That's great. So in 68, you started hosting the races, and then 
you won the next three Bostons. Um, can you tell me a little bit about each of those races, what you remember? And Well, uh, in the first race, uh, uh, it was a... It was not a cool day, but it wasn't too hot, and I was wearing a one-piece navy gym suit with long sleeves, which I could then roll up if it got too warm. And um, you ran with me that year. Yeah. And uh, I ran a um, 3.52. 3.22. I'm sorry, 3.22.52. Although I think the book says 46. I won't argue with a few seconds. And uh, the next year was the year that I'd had a longer time to train from the winter because my skiing season was over early. And um, uh, Larry was, it was a cool day. Larry was going to run on his own. And I ran with a teenager from our club who had never run before. I was experienced. I had run three races already. And in fact, one of them was a road runners club race, uh, Atlantic City. And um, so uh, Larry ha- and uh, and uh, Dick and I had trained for what the pace was for the time we wanted to run. We wanted to run, I think, um, one o two and a half quarters. That, that's a hundred two and a half. Yeah, that would be seven minute pace, Larry. No, that would be one forty. Seven and a half minute pace. Yeah. Yeah. No, that would be one forty five. Would be seven minutes. Okay, so it was a little bit seven twenty, I think. And um, what in running the road races in the spring, I would run faster than that pace at a shorter distance, so I would have some. Um, some comparison as to what a faster distance felt like, and so running at a slightly slower distance should feel good, right? Yes. So um, uh, Dick and I, and you remember, the first part of the marathon is slightly downhill, at least it was in that year. And, um, Still is. Well, yes, but the, the racers start way, way back, Larry. So that some of that is slightly downhill for the for those who first start out from in the way in the back. Yeah. Anyway, uh, and we passed the first quarter mile mark and we were at 96 seconds. Woo! Well, that was a little too fast. So we we tried to moderate a little bit, but it's hard because when you're going out, uh, the first five miles essentially are on a decline. Well, nowadays, Sarah, you do end up going slow because there were so many people. Yeah, but in that year, I think there were 900. And in, uh, no, no, that was in 69. In 70, there were 1,200. And, uh, but still, you know, very small race compared to today. And so um, Dick and I ran, and we tried to keep on pace, and we were, we were you know, pleased with our times as we kept moving along. And... Uh, the when we got to Kenmore Square, there was Larry in his sweats waiting for me to see where I was. Well, what happened was he finished in two thirty eight eleven five two thirty eight oh five, put on his warm ups and ran back to find me. He ran back another mile and then he ran in with me and Dick sailed on ahead and beat me by a minute in the last mile. So he was sort of. Uh, keeping me company, which was very nice. And um, uh, I finished in 305.07. I was 
very surprised. I hadn't realized it was so fast. And um, it was a cool, rainy day. In fact, at Hopkinton, it was even spitting snow a little bit. And I was wearing a T-shirt and shorts and because uh, Larry had watched the weather and was sure it was going to be in the upper 40s. In fact, it was in the upper 30s. So it was a lot colder than we had anticipated. And Dick and I are running along, and my hands are getting, and I had no idea where Larry was. He was up ahead somewhere. My hands are getting very, very cold. And finally, an, an, uh, an older runner came by us, and Je- Julian Siegel was his name. And he said, how you doing, Sarah May? And I said, oh, Julian, you're wearing gloves. How smart. Oh, he said, are your hands cold? And he took them off and gave them to me. And I said, no, no, you're, you'll get cold. No, no, he says, I'm fine. And actually, he was generating a lot more heat than I was because he was running at a faster pace. So I pulled on the gloves. I had to pull them on with my teeth. And Dick and I are running along. Oh, did it feel good to have some gloves on. <laughs> and after about a half an hour or so, Dick asked if uh, he could borrow the gloves. So that was fine. And then we sort of switched back and forth every half hour or so. And uh, so anyway, by the time uh, Larry met us in Kenmore Square, I had the gloves on and Dick ran ahead. And then Larry and I finished. And uh, a big, fat newsman from Herald, I think, Boston Herald, wanted to know why I did it. I mean, there are 1,200 guys in the race. They don't ask them why they did it. He asked me why they did, why I did it. And I said, why does anyone do it? To finish. That's interesting. But I should have said to finish well. If I, said, I don't even remember what I said, but I was very annoyed. <laughs> and in 71, uh, it was a slightly warmer day. And um, I'm running alone uh, again, and um, I crest the top of uh, the hill just after Boston College, and Nina Cusick and some of her compatriots run by me. And uh, that really bothered me. Uh, I didn't want to let her beat me. Um, so... Uh, I don't know, years afterwards I would say, as if somebody kicked me in the pants, and suddenly I speeded up. And I caught her going into Cleveland Circle and kept ahead of her by about 30 seconds till the end of the race. And um, I found out later that she had had uh, a knee injury earlier in the year and was playing it cool so that she wouldn't cause her knee any problems. All I know is that uh, I didn't want her to beat me, and I managed to stay ahead of her. Wow, that's great. For three in a row. So her, her I, she had finally developed competitive instinct. <laughs> uh, uh, one of the uh, things that I, uh, I, I taught her uh, during all over the years was when you go by somebody, you do it as if you mean it. You don't creep by. You you got to crush their spirit by showing that you're really much stronger than they are, even if you really aren't. So uh, she. Uh, that was a helpful. That was a helpful uh, guide. <laughs> yes, yes, it's definitely one of the best uh, advice you can you can give to anybody with, when racing. I think. And then you you ran Boston. Quite a few more times. Um. I ran Boston again in 73, 
and then not in 74 or 75 or 76. Uh, in 74, I think I was injured. In 75, uh, I don't remember why I didn't run the next two years. Perhaps we, uh, either I wasn't, either I was injured or I, uh, I um, hadn't trained enough or something. And by then, the younger women were learning how to train, and they were, and, and they looked more like marathoners than I did. If you look at pictures of me and you look at pictures of the of the really hot women runners, you will see that I am uh, slightly uh, heavier in the hips uh, than they are, and I'm not slim and and lithe as they are. I'm just someone who likes to run. And you still ran a three-hour marathon, so that's... <laughs> well, in, in, in 72, not wanting to miss the marathon, I ran even though I had a slight fever. Which a slight was, fever. She had flu. I had a no. flu, and I think I had about 99 or 100 temperature, and I wiped myself out. I didn't race again for a year because I was so wiped out. That was foolish, but I just didn't want to miss the first official run. Yes. I was, I was going to ask about that because I, I didn't see it in any of the things. I was going to ask about you racing the first official Boston, but yeah. that makes sense now. Well, she was there, but uh, I, and I said to her afterwards, I said, Sarah, couldn't you have developed a blister or something and dropped out? Uh, no, uh, you have to understand, Amy, that in the early uh, women's marathoning races, official and unofficial, uh, there was sort of an unwritten pact among us. You didn't go into a marathon unless you had the training to finish because there were all these official voices that would say women are too too frail, women can't do it, you know, and so we had to show that we were strong and could do it. And we so we had to, uh, we, we if we were going to enter a marathon, we had to know we had the training to finish. Um, it's funny the the terms official and unofficial. I was interviewing Bobby Gibbs, who ran the first Boston in, in right. like you said before, and she doesn't like the term official and unofficial because she said there was nothing unofficial about her running the entire distance. <laughs> well, um, Bobby Gibb is a free spirit then yes. and now. She's a <laughs> wonderful person, and she liked to run on her own. And um, I think it offended her that uh, when she tried to apply to run officially at Boston, uh, she got the answer back, women aren't allowed or women can't do it or something like that. Whereas what her running experience had been was running on her own through the Middlesex Fells, which is a big forest north of Boston, uh, through the forest in uh, San Diego where her first husband was stationed. He was in the Navy. Um, and she would run on her own and enjoy just the pleasure of the movement and, and so on. Whereas I had always run with Larry in uh, or alongside organized, fish, racing. organized racing. And I knew what was officially allowed and what wasn't. And she, not being in this milieu, ran because just because she liked it. She didn't have anybody to prompt her. Okay. And so I read in a few articles that you'd mentioned that Jack Semple pretty much left you and some of the other women alone because you didn't choose to get in or he knew that you were just running 
um, out of respect. Well, I didn't wear a number when I wasn't allowed to wear a number. And Jock had seen me run unofficially in road races all over Massachusetts and, and New Hampshire for years. For years. Okay. So uh, he he knew I was putting in the training. You see, the thing that bothered him about Kathy Switzer, for example, was he didn't know of her. He didn't know she'd put in the training. And he, it was his race. And he didn't like people taking advantage of it for publicity. Uh, he would tell of um, what he called beer bellies. And who, you could see them in the pictures who would dash out in the front of the, the line of runners and run for 100 yards and then sink back into oblivion and never to be seen again, except they would get their picture in the paper or on television. And he hated that. And he thought, not knowing Kathy Switzer, he didn't know she'd done the training, that she was just doing it for publicity. And she wasn't. Well, also, Sarah, it was the whole business about sanctions. Right. Now, if he let... If he and Will Cloney let women run officially, they could lose their sanction for the race and make all the men runners in the race, um, what do I want to say, non-eligible? Ineligible for international competition. Or U.S. national competition. And, and, and the foreign runners would not be able to come if the marathon, Boston Marathon didn't have the appropriate sanction from the IAAF. Which wouldn't give it if it wasn't approved by the USAAU. So it was definitely a, a bigger. There was more to it than than that. It was. It was. It had a lot of different things. For um, it seems like over the years it's kind of been gotten down to oh we just didn't want women running, but it was about no 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 right. no no no. In fact. Since the, the marathon has been legal, and I think Boston was the first legal marathon for women, Boston has treated its women very nicely. They have equally. Got, equally. They've gotten equal prizes, equal recognition, um, equal money now that they're getting money. Uh, they, they, uh, they have been very um, appropriate in dealing with the women. They, they, it wasn't their idea not to let women run. It was the AAU's rules, and they didn't want to lose their race sanction. And that, that makes a lot of sense when it's when you hear the whole story. Well, yeah, and as I said, Bobby Gibb wasn't in organized running, so she didn't know all of this stuff. Larry was, and I was because I was his wife and ran with him and ran in races where he ran, so I knew all this stuff. Okay. And so after you ran your marathons, you started doing more of the 10Ks, like the Bonnie Bell 10Ks in 1977. Were those a sanction for women at that point? Were those well, Bonnie Bell was a women's race. Um, uh, Bonnie Bell was a cosmetics company that sponsored 10K races all around the country. And actually, Kathy Switzer did an awful lot with Avon to get them to sponsor women's marathons and women's uh, long-distance races. She did a wonderful. She did wonderful things for women's distance running. Okay. Did you like the women's only races, or did you prefer to to race with the men? Oh, it was so much fun running with the guys because they were so encouraging. Whereas in the women, we were all against each other. You know, it was competition, <laughs> pure competition. But um, the the thing about having an all women's race was that you could see the women who you were who you were competing with. 
who are who are at your who are at your speed. Whereas in a in a big marathon with guys, you couldn't always tell where where your competition was. That does make it a little bit harder. Yeah. So you uh, the women would race against each other, you know, in the women's races. And did you have any um, rivalry rivals or you know? Well, the one rivalry the one rivalry was Nina Cusick in in, in the seventy one. Um, uh, Boston. Boston, and then later, I think in June, uh, we ran in a Roadrunners Club race in Atlantic City, and um, I beat her by seven minutes. That was very yeah. satisfying. Wow! But the next year, uh, the year that women were official in Boston, the following week after Boston, we both ran in a track race, a uh, two-mile track race in New York, and she beat me handily. I don't know, by 10 seconds. After the marathon. Hmm? Two weeks after the marathon. A week after the marathon. Oh, Harry had a theory that um, a shorter distance after the marathon, you would feel it was so short that you'd be energized. No, no, no. It doesn't have to do with anything to do with feelings. (laughs) It has to do with uh, the body overcompensating for the depletion of glycogen. So I that told a, you, a, he studied all a of week, this stuff. A week later, I mean, my personal best two-mile races were always a week after a marathon. Oh, okay. I wouldn't try to do a 10-miler, but a two-miler would work out pretty well. Okay. Wow. Um, that's, that's an interesting thought. Yeah, I have to definitely look into that one. I like that one. Um, that's pretty cool. So other than Nina, um, did you develop any friendships through running that are still going today? Or Well, um, we don't see each other. We were all so far spread far apart. When we see each other, those of us who were in, in the races, in the early races, uh, I mean, of course we're friendly. But Nina is in uh, New York. I'm here in Cambridge. Julia Chase, I'm not sure where she was originally, but she's now in Connecticut. Well, that's where she was from. Yeah. Kathy Switzer uh, was in uh, New Zealand for some time, and the gals on the West Coast we never saw. Okay. Now, when I ran my 305 in Boston in 1970, that wasn't the best time in the country. There was a kid who was 13, I think, or 14. Her name was Carolyn Walker, and she ran a 304 I think in the Culver City Marathon, some marathon in in California. Yeah, she uh, Carolyn Walker in 1970. She ran 302 in the Seaside Oregon Marathon. Okay, yep. I wasn't quite right, but um, but then, that was Elizabeth, the time that you. Oh no, somebody also did a 301. Yeah, Elizabeth Bonner ran right. Beth Bonner. Right. Yep, and then Sarah ran a 30.05, and then then the bottom fell out. Well, in, <laughs> at, at the um, at the New York City Marathon in '71 in the fall, uh, Beth Bonner won in like 3:56. I'm sorry, 2:56, and Nina was I think a minute or so back of her. Okay. But you'll you'll see that. I was third with a 3:08. Oh, in New York. Hmm. Okay. Very, very. You were very consistent with um, with all of your 
with all of your races. That's because probably of your training was was pretty consistent with Larry coaching you. Yeah, well, in 71, I was uh, 36. Okay. I'm sorry, 35. Okay. I was 35 in 71. So you see, I'm getting kind of doddering. Uh, I, I'm 35 at the moment, so I'm... Oh, still, shucks. You're a spring I, chicken. I'm, that's what I was going to say. I was going to say, I still feel like a spring chicken, I hope. Yeah, but I'm more than twice as old as you are. I'm going to be 77 in May. Oh, that's fun. Now, I see you have a question about what kind of equipment was available. Um None of these things you mention. I wear, I have a large foot, so I could fit into a men's size nine. Okay. So uh, I was able to wear track shoes if if I could find, uh, uh, running shoes, if I could find some that were, uh, uh, you know, narrow enough in the heels. And there were some styles that, that were. But uh, in terms of bras or spikes or watches or drinks or whatever, none of that stuff was available. In fact, uh, I would wear um, boys um, or men's medium-sized shorts, you know, nylon shorts, because there weren't any women's. And my and my first uh, singlet was a T-shirt that I cut the sleeves off. Ah, that's great. I was told that a lot of women actually didn't drink any water during the marathon, and a lot of water really wasn't offered in marathons. Well, the, in Boston, the first official water stop was at 11.2 miles, just beyond Natick Square. And our club, the Cambridge Sports Union, would have a water stop set up at like five miles or so for club members and friends. So I was slow enough relative to the guys so that by the time I got there, uh, sometimes there wasn't any water there. And that was a real, that was really bad on a hot day. Yes. I remember, I think it was in 71, I'm run, the, there was no water at the CSU water stop, and I'm running down the road, and, and the runners in front of me are like a stream. And all of a sudden, there's a kink to the right in this stream, and then it continues on. And I was thinking, is there a hole in the road? What's going on? When I get there, I see there's a, um, a I guess it's a service station, and there was a barrel and a, and a hose, and you could get water. And so everybody uh, moved out to get the water and then moved back into the line of running. And that was the kink. <laughs> but um, uh, we, uh, a bunch of us, went to, um, uh, we and um, uh, a bunch of other runners from local clubs went and talked to somebody at WBZ a few years later. I guess it was after 76, Larry, when it was so hot. Yeah. Um, and we said to them, you know, uh, there's not enough water. There could be something very serious happening. And it was after that that the DAA began to uh, began to get um, WBZ is a local uh, TV station here, and and they interviewed us and so on. I don't know if it ever got on on the television, but they interviewed us. It was background. And it was after that that Boston began to get a little more serious about water, and a little more serious about. Uh, 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 ambulances because they what they would do is a week or so before the race they would call all the local ambulance companies along the way and say oh by the way we're having a race and that's not the way you endear yourself or get the best help and now um, with 
so many thousands and thousands of runners there. They have organized water every, what, two miles or something like that, every mile? I don't know. They have organized water. They have organized um, uh, first aid people all along the way, ambulances and whatever. And at the finish, they have a whole tent so that if you're not well, you can go in there and get help. And, I mean, everything is so much better organized now. And it's definitely a good thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, not having any water on a hot day until 11.2 miles, that's bad. Yes, that's really bad. And the next one, I think, was at the fire station where you turned from Route 16 onto Commonwealth Avenue. And that was... Oh, there was... Yeah, that's right. 17 and a half miles. Right. And I think there was one more, but I don't remember. Uh, That was very bad. That was very bad. Not not very well planned out, for sure. Well, you see, um, I spoke to Jerry Nason one year. He was was on the BAA board, and he was uh, one of the lead sports writers at the Boston Globe, especially covering marathons. And he said to me, you know, we just wanted to have a nice little race where we'd get a few hotshot runners and we could sort of do everything. On the back of an envelope. Yeah, easily, you know, (laughs) with no big deal except that they made their race so damn popular that everybody wanted to run in it. And so then they had to do then they had to be more serious. Yeah. But it took a, it was like pulling teeth to get oh. them to be more serious. Oh goodness. And I was reading an article one of them that said that Larry encouraged you to run the Boston Marathon to be a pioneer, did you did you see yourself as a pioneer in women's running, or did you see any other women as pioneers in women's running? Well, I ran because uh, running together with him and with guys in races was fun. It made me feel good. Training uh, uh, enabled me to to meet uh, targets, uh, you know, time targets, uh, and that felt very satisfying. And um, and he said you could be a pioneer, and that appealed to me. You know, the running was not just something that made me feel good. It was something that would lead the way, and that felt good. Did, did the women who ran ever talk about being pioneers? or? No, not really, not really. We were we were running because we wanted to run, and those people, that those officials that didn't want us to were benighted and misguided. And nuisances. <laughs> I like that nuisances. I like that one. Well, uh, I can tell you when Julia Child, uh, Julia Childs, Julia Chase ran the first time in uh, Manchester, Connecticut, at the Thanksgiving Day Five Miler. Uh, there were uh, officials that didn't want her to run, and tried to give her a hard time. And if that isn't being a nuisance, I don't know what is. I mean, it's a public road. Definitely agree with that. And how long did you keep racing, or are you still racing? No. Both Larry and I have uh, inherited a bad set of knees, and uh, I had one knee replaced in in September of uh, 2010. Uh, But Larry hasn't been running since 96. I was running until about 2000. Well, actually, my knee problem came originally from a, a wrestling injury. When I was in high school and early college, wrestling was my primary sport, and we did. I did running primarily as conditioning for wrestling, 
and then uh, once I uh, eventually the injury led me to drop wrestling, and I then just continued running. And you have a question here. Uh, are you still are you competing with the Masters? I was forty in nineteen seventy six. Masters running hadn't really started um, until the late 70s, I think, so that I didn't have a lot of chance to compete in Masters races. And by that time, um, I was doing a sport called orienteering. Do you know what that is? Uh, That's where you, it's kind of part running, part uh, topographical. Navigate. Navigate. Okay. Let me give you a concise description. It's like cross-country running, except the course is only defined by a fixed number of points. That are circled on your map. And the route in between is up to you. Oh. So okay. you can run up the hill, down the cliff, and across the swamp, which is a straight line, if you're a good navigator and pretty strong. Or you can take a path, which may be two times or more longer, uh, but it's, if, if you're not as strong in navigation, it may be a more sure way for you to get to the point you want to go to. Okay. And how did they and know? It's done on it's done on foot, it's done on cross-country skis, and even on mountain bikes. And there's a few other variations. And do they have um, certain ways to do checkpoints at, at the certain spots, or how do they? Oh, yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a, uh, something that looks like a three-cornered box kite, half Half, half of each face is diagonally split between white and orange. And uh, either there's a punch that you punch a, your scorecard with or there's some other device that you can put in electronic. Um, to record that you've been there. Oh. And Larry and I have been, both been on the U.S. ski orienteering team. Okay. Back in the 80s. Back in the 80s. Okay. okay. So how long did you guys do the orienteering? We still do. Oh, that's great. Yeah, because there's age groups in, in, in orienteering. Like in running. Like in running now. Oh, that is really cool. And we also still compete on in cross-country ski races. Yeah, at our age, if we get into a race, um, uh, we're old enough so that we may be the only one or two people of our age group in the race. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's and so our club gets points if we're in the race okay now last year uh, Larry trained and then raced up the Mount Washington auto route you know the Mount Washington race are you okay. familiar with it I've, I've heard about it but I, I don't know much about it at all well, okay. every, every June they, there's a foot race up Mount Washington up the auto road it's 7.6 miles, sort of, and it's only one hill. Oh. But it's a 4,600-foot climb. So it's like running a half marathon in terms of time, roughly. But uh, most of the people in the back of the race where Larry was are walking. It's only the first, I don't know, few people up at the front who, are, who can really run the whole way. Oh, my goodness. I ran it in 68 or 9 when I was young and tough and then not since, because I was unofficial. But this was the first time Larry had done the race. And we're very proud of him. Yes, that's amazing. That's that's definitely a challenging course to take on. Oh, my goodness. Did you guys race together a lot? 
Uh, when, when you both oh, yeah, we ran a lot of r- road races together. But no, we didn't run together. He would run at okay. his pace, and I would run at my pace. Okay. So there was, he didn't pace you very often then in races? Only in the early days. Only in the early days. Once she got going, and once there was competition for her, I felt she should run it, you know, compete on her own. Well, the competition at first was other guys who were running at the same pace I was, so that Larry didn't have to run at my pace. He could run at his own pace faster. And then eventually it began to be women. Of course, by that time I was getting older, and the younger girls were learning the training, and they were ahead of me. And that happened in cross-country skiing, too. The the first few races um, uh, I did well, uh, even though I didn't know the trait, the, the the technique because I was very strong from my running and eventually the younger girls learned the training and had better technique and they did better yeah it really helps it's a technique sport like swimming and it really helps to start when you're eight or nine years old so that by the time you're 20 it's just built this technique is built into you whereas we didn't start well I was I was 29. No, I was... Uh, yeah, you were 29. Yeah, I was 29. And I was 28. And a, I was 28. I'm 15 months younger than he is. 16 months. 17 months. year and a half. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, and you guys are still doing it today. That's even better. Oh, yeah. Keep an act. Well, we have a, uh, a cross-country ski area 10 miles out of Boston. It's on a golf course. They make snow. Last week when there was no snow anywhere, they had snow because they make it. And they set up a 1K, 1.5K, 2K loop. And our club holds races there every Tuesday night. We get 70 to 90 runners. Skiers. Skiers, sorry. every uh, Racers every Tuesday night. And this place also holds high school league races there uh, Wednesday and Thursday afternoons. Oh, wow. Because they make snow, and the high schools can depend, as long as the weather is, is cold enough, that there will be snow. And I was out there this morning. Excellent. That's really cool. Well, that, 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 since we can't run, that's our primary sport now. And uh, in the summertime, we have a Nordic track, and we also uh, roller ski on a local bike path. Oh. Is that, do you find that that's close Cross-country skiing? Or? Yeah, pretty close. Except- Not rollerblades, roller skis. Yeah, I've, I've seen them. Uh, I was in Tampa, and they had a path, and there were people out there with, with the roller skis. And Oh, yeah, in Tampa? In Tampa, yeah. They, um, it oh, my. It's really, really fun to watch. Um, yeah, it's, it's, really, it's really very similar in terms of muscle training. Uh, the only difference is that if you fall... The black snow is not as forgiving as the white stuff. <laughs> oh, Pavement, so in other words. So we occasionally pick up yes. some road rash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we also cute. have an, a ski erg. You know what that is? A ski is where you're attached to resistance? Yeah. Do you know what? Have you ever seen the uh, uh, rowing machines? There's yep. a Concept 2 rowing machine. It has this flywheel with a fan, okay? Yep. Well, what they also make is what they call a ski erg, in which it's set up for you to ski, well, to, to train your mostly your upper body 
uh, in double polling uh, using the same hardware. So there's a post that goes up and, and stra uh, cables that go up and two handles, and you just stand there and you uh, pull on those ropes, and you go on and on and on, and it comes with a little computer, and it keeps track of your pace and your distance, and so, and you can even you can even set it up so that it'll uh, arrange interval workouts for you or whatever. And, uh, and when we're in the summertime, that's where I really do any intensive training because I don't like to do I don't like to ski too hard on the roller skis because it makes it more likely you're going to end up getting a fall. So we we just go out and ski for distance on the roller skis. On a bike path nearby. Yeah, the roads the roads are a little too uh, uh, they're not smooth, and this traffic even in, in a country road. Some of our uh, younger skiers um, uh, train uh, roller skiing on uh, country roads, uh, but uh, I'm it, I, it takes me a longer time to heal than it does them. <laughs> I'm not for taking any more risks. And, uh, right, right. No, no need for gratuitous risk. Yes, I agree with that. I'd rather be healthier and do something maybe a little more boring inside than to risk <laughs> missing many weeks of, of exercise in pain. Now, let me tell you about um, the 1971 Plotters Marathon. Because I know that Ambie Burfoot doesn't consider it a full marathon. Um, it was the course was um, certified by Graham Parnell, who was who was uh, from the sponsoring club, the Spartan AC. Um, Art Dulong and um, what was the other guy, Larry, who won the marathon? Salazar. Yeah, were from that club. Alberto yeah. Salazar Alab came from that club. Came from that club. And Graham Parnell was a very serious uh, race organizer and runner himself. And he set up, he certified the course. And at one point, somebody misdirected us so that we didn't take an additional um, several hundred yards that he had wanted us to take. But he... he when we came through again and saw him, we said, what happened? He said, uh, I'm adding it on at the end. Hmm. So he, we felt, I mean, because Ted Corbett was in that race too, looking to set a record for his age group. And so we felt that uh, uh, Graham Parnell knew what he was doing, that, that, it, was, that it was a true marathon. And uh, so we have never questioned it. I ran uh, later in the fall in uh, in the in what was called the Bay State Marathon in Framingham, Massachusetts, and uh, oh, I was I was ready to go. Uh, and when I finished, it was 3:04 and something, and I was so disappointed because I had hoped to get closer to three hours. Well, it turns out we uh, several years later we found out that the course was a half a mile long oh no so um uh, you know those were the days when things weren't always what they should be and in fact um john boris and larry and i in 67 
measured the uh, Boston Marathon course. And got it certified. And got it certified. Was that 67, Larry? It was for the uh, Olympic trials. 67, because the Olympic trials were going to be at Boston in 68. Right. And so we, um, Larry and I, measured a mile uh, near our home on a straight piece of street. And then uh, uh, I drove, and he and John uh, rode along on their bikes and measured and so on so that we could certify Boston. And it was 90 yards long. And 90 was okay. I think it had to be plus or minus 170. Okay. That's interesting. I didn't know there was the, there was the leeway. Well, now the rule is you have to make it a tenth of a percent long. Oh. Okay. Uh, that's just to eliminate any errors. Uh, so a tenth of a percent uh, is, let's see, a percent of 10,000 meters is 100 meters. A tenth of a percent is uh, 10 meters. So maybe it's a percent. That sounds like a lot. But I thought it was a tenth of a percent. Well, you can find out, Amy, but there is some kind of leeway that they want you to, that you want you to put, allow for when you measure a marathon. And, of course, now they do it by GPS or whatever. <laughs> Oh my goodness! Things, some things have definitely changed, and other things have not. Yeah. Definitely, definitely fun. You guys have had an amazing history together through running and sports and. Let us tell you one more story. Oh, keep telling stories! I love it. This is in '76. Um, it was a very hot day, and uh, the people who were timing Boston were a group of old men who were track and field the officials. The track and field officials. <laughs> and runners were coming through so in such clumps that they couldn't keep track of them. So they began to make lines. They would have a have a, a rope. Shoots. Shoots. And then and then the next bunch were in the next shoot and the next and what happened was you could pick up fifty places by just slipping under the rope. Oh. So um we we thought that this was dreadful. So we had seen a small film about the Vassalopet. You know what that is? No. It's an 83-kilometer ski race in Sweden. It's held every year. And they get 10,000 skiers in this race. But they get a lot more now because they have races for the whole week. Right. But at that time, we're talking about... It was a that, single race. It was a single race. And we had a picture of how they did the timing. Each racer had a piece on his bib, which was torn off and put into a timing device. Like a time clock. Yeah. And then given to the race official at that. And it was like toll boots, you know. It was like like you'd go through a supermarket uh, uh, checkout area. Okay. With lots of slots to go through. Lots of slots to go through. And then they would take all of these time-slotted pieces and um, put them in order so that you could have a, a, a pretty, pretty reasonable way to determine that, you'd had, that you, know, you got people's times quite right. Well, we, sh- we, we decided that if they could do it for skiing, which was a lot more complicated than running, that we ought to be able to do something like that for running. So we went to the Honeywell people. Honeywell computer people, and uh, we know somebody who knew somebody who got us an introduction, and um, 
we showed them this film, and we said, you know, you're considered the Avis of the computer companies. You know, IBM was the big computer company, uh, uh, like Hertz, and, and Honeywell was number two at that time, like Avis. So we said, uh, you're going to have to make your own approaches to the BAA organization. We're just runners. They won't listen to us. But you need somebody who is a peer to Will Cloney. Who can talk to him. Because what they really need to have happen is to have this computerized. Mm -hmm. And their guy in charge of PR knew somebody at the BAA. They made connections. And the first year they were allowed to process the results. Post-process. Yes, not do the results, but process them after after they were finished. And the next year they allowed them to do the results. And then the next year, they allowed them to handle the the um, registration. The registration. We all, we, up to that point, everyone had to go out to Hopkinton and check in at the Hopkinton High School, and that was a zoo. And so, um, because they were afraid that if they uh, let people get their numbers in town, that they wouldn't run, they would sign in halfway, you know, whatever. Um, it didn't work that way. It worked out very well. And now they have it even better. You have little chips in your in your shoes or on your number or something, and it's automatic that you're timed. But uh, for many years, Honeywell did a very good job. Then they brought the BAA more into the 20, what that time was the 20th century. Wow, that's amazing. That's pretty good. Um, I do have a question about registering for the races. I was told in the 60s, at least, to get your number for Boston, you had to do a physical. Yeah. How long did how long did they keep that up for? I don't know when they stopped doing it. But the, the, the physical, when you went to get the physical, um, you had to go to the high school. You pick up your number. You had to go through the physical to pick up your number, okay? And the physical consisted of a doctor would listen to your heart and weigh you. These were boxing doctors. <laughs> Their experience was mainly boxing. So they would weigh you. Okay. And uh, there was, what year was it? Was it 65, Sarah? Must have been. I think it was 65. There's a fellow from the BAA named Al Confalone who had been on the Olympic team the year before in 64. Okay. <clears throat> when the whatever whoever doctor it was listened to his heart, he heard a murmur, which apparently is not unusual for distance runners, okay, and uh, wouldn't let him run. That's the guy who's been on the Olympic team. Now, we saw him at all the races. He was one of the top guys in the country, okay. So he ran anyway without a number, and he was the third one across the line. That was the physical business at the, at the high school. But I have no idea when they uh, stopped doing that. Okay. Interesting. I found that very interesting that they, they did physicals. I would suspect as the race got bigger and bigger, that would get a little harder to keep up. Well, once they moved it from the high school, they couldn't do it anymore. Oh, okay. And that you had to. Uh, um, when was it starting, Larry? In the eight, in, in eighty, that you had to meet a time uh, time um, I, I don't requirement. Remember. I don't remember when they when they had the time requirements. It was after my time, but um, 
it's presumed that once you once you had to meet a time requirement that at another marathon uh, to to run Boston, then it was presumed that you were that you were fit. That that makes sense, I guess. The qualifying time. Now I have to say that Nina Cusick was and and her friends and her running uh, uh, road races cl- friends in New York were very instrumental in getting women uh, um, into the marathon legally, and Kathy Switzer was very instrumental in popularizing women doing long distance running by persuading Avon and I don't know Bonnie Bell some other peop- some other sponsors to sponsor women's 10k races. Uh, not just one, but a bunch. Yeah. Um, they they made a big difference. Those two ladies, uh, not not necessarily together, but in their own spheres. Yeah. That's and so and about the gals in the, on the west coast, we didn't see them very much. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only time I I um, I ran in the U.S. Uh, cross country championships in '65 in Forest Park. In, no, not, not it was '66 in Forest Park in St. Louis, and there were all the top women in the country: uh, Doris Brown, uh, Marie Mulder, um, all the top women in the country. I think I was 20th. I don't remember. I don't remember either. Well, Marie Mulder fell. Yeah. You mean when we held the championship? No, 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 the next year. Oh, well, we held the U.S. championship cross-country in 65. Oh. And... In Cambridge, on the Cambridge Golf Course, which was being oh. renovated, so they let us run on it. Okay. And uh, Marie Mulder was the favorite, but she fell someplace on the course, and Sandra not won. That's all I really remember. Were you 20th? Were you that far back? I can't believe that. In 66? In 65. No, 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 not, oh. no, not, in, 60, not in 65. I don't remember where I was in 65. I don't even know if you ran in 65. Because I was an organizer. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think I did run, but I don't remember. But in 66, I think I was 15th or 20th, something like that. You mean in St. Louis? In, in, in St. Louis, yeah. 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 Well, that had to been a, a trip to... I think you guys you took the kids and everything. It had to have been a well in sixty in sixty five uh, we went to the AAU convention in Washington D.C. to try to persuade uh, the women's long distance committee, the women's track and field committee, to add uh, a longer distance to allow longer to distance. allow a longer distance for women, and not as a championship, but just to allow it to be any a longer distance to be sanctioned. And we had with us a doctor named Gabe Merkin, who had all kinds of studies from Europe and from his own experience about uh, long distance, you know, being good for women and not being hurtful. And they didn't even want to listen to him. They said we were exploiting girls because their idea of uh, females who were running would be girls, high school girls, not not uh, older women. And um, in 66, since it was going to be in Hawaii, the AAU convention, we decided to go. We took our kids. We hired a babysitter at the hotel we were at. We brought Larry's mother. We stopped on the way in St. Louis to run the uh, cross-country championship and then went on to Hawaii. Well, one reason we took my mother was that uh, my brother was stationed in uh, Hawaii at the time. And she could visit him. 
She'd never flown on a plane, but uh, she was so worried about the children and so on, she forgot to be worried about flying on a plane. And um, when we got to the uh, to the meeting where we wanted to press for uh, longer distance, just to be allowed, uh, they didn't even want to talk to us. They didn't want to let us talk. Finally, one of the vice presidents who was there let us talk, but they didn't want to hear us. They they paid no attention. And, of course, by 66, Bobby Gibb had already run Boston. Oh, goodness. It, it seems the, the powers that be in the committee don't change much over the years. Well, well one of the reasons that... It was political. It was political. Yeah. Uh, one of the advantages of being a high mucky muck in the AAU, it was the AAU at the time, uh, is that you're one of the people who gets to be an official when the teams, the U.S. teams travel. Okay. Or when there are big track meets indoors or even outdoors, you get to wear a blazer, you get to be an official there, you get special seating, special consideration. Anyway, and then they didn't want to share that. Uh, they that didn't want to dilute the per the perks with with distance running people. Uh, so we we realized this years later. Just at the time, we just thought they were being unreasonable. Well, it seems unreasonable. <laughs> well, it does now, okay? It does now, yeah. It definitely does. It's interesting to get all the stories and the backgrounds of things. It, it It's definitely um, brought the whole history of women's running into, into a better focus for me, and I kind of have a definite outline in my head of, of how things happened versus, you know, what you always thought happened. There were, you know, I made I made a list. You've got to talk to Grace Butcher. She was the one that got the AU to um, recognize the half mile. Um, and then there were other names: Chris McKenzie, Julia Chase, Lynn Carmen, Rasmus Bob, Mary Lepper, Doris Brown, Arlene Piper uh, ran Pikes Peak. Abby Hoffman was from Canada. Leah Bennett Ferris. Sandy Pashkin, Nina Cusick, Amy Begley, that's you, Sandra Knott. Uh, I don't know what kind of records they keep from those times. It's, it's definitely hard to find some of the records. Um, Sandy Knott is one. I'm trying to find. Isn't she from Canada, Larry? Who? Sandy Knott. No, she was from. Uh... I missed it out east, but I'm not sure. No, the Midwest. Somewhere and I don't remember where. Okay. She may be from okay. Cleveland. Yeah, that sounds she right. She may be from Cleveland. Okay. Or may have right. been from yeah. Cleveland at the time. Yeah, she was one that wasn't on my original list that they gave me, but I'm I'm at liberty to add a few people. So, um, like, uh. Now, did you see the um, BAA? Uh, celebration of the women who ran uh, in the first legal race. They had a picture of us at the time and so on. Oh, yeah, they called it the class of 72. Is what <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, Elaine Peterson, who was an airline stewardess, is dead, so she's not available. Okay. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a few. Um, Mickey Gorman, she's battling cancer, so she's not up for it. Oh, dear, I didn't know that. She's a wonderful yeah. person. 
Yeah, that's a, um, kind of started the, the project a little late to get her included. She just doesn't feel up to doing it. And um, a couple other women, uh, some had accidents a few years ago. Some have had cancer, but not very many. Most women are still around, and it's it's amazing. Um, and they're all kicking. Everyone is active and, and doing amazing things. It's really fun to hear what everybody is, is keeping up with and doing. And um, it's definitely, and I'm putting different people in contact with each other um, constantly. You see, we, we saw each other at important uh, running events, but we lived far apart. And there wasn't any Internet, so we had very little contact with each other. Yep. Makes it hard. Definitely. All right. You have definitely told some amazing stories, and the relationship with you and Larry is definitely one. Now, you have to realize at this point we're married 57 years. We've known each other for 60 years, and we have grandchildren who range from almost 23 to 9. Aw. That's amazing. Well, we had nothing to do with the grandchildren. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they keep you busy, though. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, Is there anything else that either of you would like to add or? Hmm. Well, running and being active physically has been part of our lives, um, mine since my middle 20s, Larry's since he was in high school, and uh, it's it's an important part of our lives. I mean, every day we do something, uh, something for an hour, 70, 80 minutes, depending, you know, depending on the weather and what's going on. Uh, in the wintertime, we'll, we'll ski for 60, 70, 80 minutes. We go, uh, the past few weekends, we've gone for three-hour skis. Um, that's easier than three-hour runs, by the way. <laughs> okay. And, um, but even in the, even in the non-snow parts of the year, we'll, uh, do our Nordic track for 60, 70 minutes. We'll roller ski for uh, 65 to 90 minutes. Um, but being being physically active um, is a part of our lives. It makes us feel better. And that we like it. Advice. We like the people we've met through sport. That's, that's definitely true. I think people that do sports are, are uh, a good breed of people. But So Larry's comment to you in 57 that, you know, the – the habits you form now will last you the rest of your life, and he was right. Yes, he was right. <laughs> oh, that was a good comment to get you started. Absolutely, absolutely, because I had no point of reference. Very nice. I mean, high school sports. In in high school, I had to take sign up for special gym in order to have some. Uh, uh, experience on parallel bars or a horse or anything like that. Wow. Definitely different times. Definitely different times. <laughs> uh, well, I want to thank you both for this really great interview. I've, I've learned a lot and the stories are amazing and it's always fun to add uh, more history to the Boston Marathon, especially for the, the women's races. Now tell me, uh, where do you live? Right now I live in Beaverton, Oregon, Okay. right beside Nike. Okay. Are you married? Do you have children? I, my husband and I have been together since 
95. Uh, this would be... Oh, it's 18 years. Yeah, we've been together for almost 18 years and married for 13 of them, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's, it's really fun. We I jokingly say now that we've been together more than half my life since I'm 35, <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm like, oh, he's been with me for more than half my life now. It's amazing. Uh, we don't have kids yet. We change our minds every six months on that one. Um, well... Uh, it's not something you do lightly. Yes. Um, do you have a profession besides a writer? Well, I'm actually, I was actually, I've actually been running for Nike for the past six years. Um, I was coached by Alberto, oh. and we parted ways, and I'm back to having my husband coach me. So I had my husband coach me for six years, Alberto coached me for six years, and now I'm back to my husband coaching me, but... I've had a bun- I had a bunch of injuries. That's why I had to leave Alberto's program, and I'm trying to come back from those. And if I do, great. If I don't, I'll retire this summer and and hopefully move on to college coaching or or some other. Try aspect. orienteering. That's a fun sport. Okay, I think my husband would like that. He's had three knee surgeries, so he he needs something less pounding. <laughs> yeah, try orienteering. I don't think there. Cl- yeah, there's a club called. Uh, there were two clubs in in Oregon, right? Okay. And I'll send you a link for them on uh, by email. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That and uh, I'm actually want to get my husband into the the cross country skiing. He, um, I think that would be good for his knees as well. So. It oh, is. Yeah, it is wonderful for knees. It is. That's why we can do it. Uh, it. We do both classical and skate style, and it's. It's easier on the knees than running. Running is there's a certain amount of pounding, as you know. Oh wait, excellent. Yeah, I think those are two things that I think he would. Uh, I think he would get into as well. Okay, I will send you some links for the for the Oregon clubs uh, on your email. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Okay. All right. Well, you guys have a wonderful night, and it was really fun talking to you. Okay. okay. Bye bye. Bye bye. All right. Bye. Thanks.